Welcome to the Growth Investing Secret Podcast. This is Calvin Sito. And this is Jonathan Ang. The reason why we started this podcast is to help each household to have at least one full-time investor by investing to high-growth companies called Superstocks. We didn't come from well-to-do backgrounds and after many years of investing, we finally became full-time investors before the age of 30. This was only possible with growth investing. Our mission is to help both beginner and experienced investors get better investment returns. Don't settle for less. It is very possible that you can achieve out-of-the-world results and we have proven that it is possible through the returns of our community. So now, let's be committed to learn, dive in and get started on today's episode. All content from participants shall not be treated as professional advice or recommendation to buy or sell any position in any financial-related instruments. The content is made available for educational purpose only. We may buy any securities mentioned and we may stand to benefit financially if they rise in value. You should seek independent financial and legal advice before making any financial decisions. Hey everyone, it's Calvin here and I'm your host for today. So some of you know that we may have interviewed some incredible investors from Singapore and America and today's guest is from Canada, right? So I've been in Canada earlier in 2020 where I was doing my management trip visits and I must say that the Canadians are extremely friendly people. Our guest lives in Toronto, Canada and since he started investing at the age of 18, he has amassed a huge portfolio of uh, $300,000 before he even hit 30 years old. He is an author of three successful books, The Market Masters, The Capital Compounders, and The Lessons from the Successful Investors. Being massively featured on multiple platforms such as The Financial Post, The Toronto Star, he's always on the constant lookout for the next multi-bagger business. I'm excited to introduce to you, Robin Spezzali. Hey, thanks, Calvin. Happy to be here. All right. So, hey, Robin, you know what? I was Googling around and I realized that Canadians seems to have some unique phrases at, at in your day-to-day speeches, like adding a A, you know, like, so am I correct, A? Yeah, so you know, for years, Canadians said A, so I'll say it A. Yeah. Um, it's something to, to follow a sentence, right? It's almost like asking for validation that you're correct. And so what, what has happened is with the new millennial generation, they've evolved the A at the end of the sentence, and now they say, right, right. Oh. So A has now turned into right in the new generation. Uh, so it's quite interesting how, how it's come to be here in Canada. But I heard in Singapore, you guys have your own thing that you follow on at the end of the sentence. It's law, right? Okay, law. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, what we <laughs> call uh, uh, Singlish. <laughs> there we go. Exactly. Okay. So, um, yeah, I guess we all have our fillers, right? <laughs> and I think, uh, the, you know, the U.S. the U.S. has started this thing and it's spread to Canada. I hate it. People will lead their sentences with, I mean. I mean, I mean, and it's, I, I just, it's just too much, man, honestly. I mean, Robin, this is how it works. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so why don't we start off by being, that, being a bit uh, different, you know, uh, tell us more about uh, Canada and how do you like Canada and, and, and in Canada, does it have a huge uh, investing community over there? So Canada is a great country. Yep. You know, I was born here, raised here. I haven't lived anywhere else, so I can't really, you know, say. Um, I heard Singapore is beautiful. It's amazing. I have to go. So when I do go, I'll let you know. Sure. Um, but the investment community here is quite small. Mm-hmm. And it's all really centered around uh, like Bay Street in Toronto, right? But you, can get, you have the big institutions and the big banks in Toronto, Canada, but you don't really have you know, big contingent of do-yourself investors. Um, I find there's pockets. There's pockets of do-yourself investors in Toronto. There's some in Montreal, some in Vancouver. But, you know, it pales in comparison to, uh, you know, the the investors in the U.S. and Hong Kong, other areas in the the world, right? But um, when you do find like-minded people, um, you know, you're pretty much friends for life, right? Like, you know, there's the guys out in Montreal, Yep. Uh, who started uh, eSpace Microcaps. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been in touch with those guys. There's Paul Andriola on the West Coast in Vancouver. Wow. Um, he has small cap discoveries. And, you know, you really, you really tend to, to stick with these people, right, who are into these, these small companies yep. that you really hit out of the park. And you, you, call them, you call them, right, multi-baggers, right? Yep. And, and I think it's, it's so interesting because – um, I'm not sure if I could frame this uh, correctly, but when there's not a huge investing community out there, uh, there seems to be a lot of mispricing that could happen. You know, in some of the uh, best of the Canadian names, right? We have Spin Masters. We have a few companies that are really, really good. So that could be that could be something that is to your advantage 
really, right? Because I think in America, uh, whatever companies, even mid caps, small caps, they're all heavily well researched, and the price discovery could not. Um, um, there's a lot of price discovery that that actually happens, right? So, um, Robin, actually, I was looking at, at your story, and it, I can't help but to realize that your story is very very similar to mine. You know, I started investing at the age of 19, and while I guess you started between age of 16, 18, um, but you know, I guess we are just the sort of kids that when we're growing up, we are wired very differently, and somehow we got attracted to learning about stocks very early. So, um, for the listeners, right, could you tell us about your background and your story and how you got into investing? Yeah, sure. So grade 10, business class in high school, teacher gives all of us the uh, business section of the newspaper. Google Finance did not exist back then. Okay, so we had to circle one ticker symbol in the business section of the newspaper. And all of us 30 kids in class would have to track that one stock through the four months and to report on it every month how it's doing. I chose a company called Ford Zanny Group. And Ford Zanny owns um, the biggest retail chain of uh, sports goods uh, called SportCheck and a couple of other sport retailers. Ford Zanny was eventually bought out by Canadian Tire, a big uh, billion dollar market cap company in Canada. But, you know, as soon as I, I started that process, I thought, you know, this is really for me. You know, you can make a wise decision. You place a bet on it, put money into it, and the money works for you. And I, I was just, I was awestruck, right? Because I, I, I figured early in life, I don't want to work too hard for my money. Um, it would be great to do the upfront work, like I said, and then have the money work for you. So there you go. Wow, so that must be an incredible experience. And I, I, I guess maybe uh, for you, after you have experienced that sort of gains, I mean, what, what, what do you exactly do with the first part of gold that you made in the stock market? Did you actually uh, decide to spend more investment books? Did you decide to spend more money learning courses? Or, or what, what do you do exactly to kind of like ensure that this success actually sustains throughout? Like, I mean, that was just the beginning, right? Yeah, okay, exactly. That was the beginning. That was... I was only, what, like 14 years old, really young. Um, then I discovered Warren Buffett. You know, I, I went online, uh, Googled, you know, top investors. Warren Buffett then, and even now, uh, obviously, comes up. Um, and read as much as I could on him. I realized he didn't write any books. So, you know, I read a couple of annual shareholder letters. I didn't really get it when I was 14. Um, but I read books about him later on. I would then enter university. I went to the University of Waterloo, 18 years old, first year, first week, frosh. Uh, you know, a lot of the other guys were, you know, partying and everything every night, all day. But the first week, I actually opened up my brokerage account. And um, I started off with five companies. One of the five, you're probably going to laugh at me. One of the five companies back then was Research in Motion, which is now known as BlackBerry. But oh. it, was a growth, it was a growth company back then, right? In uh, 2005, it was, you know, the only smartphone out there, right? Before 2007 and Apple just ate their lunch completely. Um, and then the others were, I think it was a bank. So it was BlackBerry, it was a bank, it was Suncor. And I forget the other two, but uh, I, I started with large caps, right? Companies that I really knew. And I think as I've progressed, um, you know, I've gone from like the large caps, the mid caps, the small caps, the micro caps and Usually what I hang out in now are the uh, small caps and, and micro cap stocks. If you look at the highest concentration of my own portfolio, that's where I like to focus. All right. That's amazing. And um, I, I think I also like a lot of uh, micro caps because I feel that they just have this kind of explosive result because, you know, they always say, you know, when, when a big company wins a big deal, that's pretty normal. But when a small company wins a big deal, that could be life-changing for that business itself. Right. Yes. And, and since we're on this topic, right, I'd like to also circle back a little bit on your books, right? Because among the three books that you have written, you know, I just want to find out from you what were some of the learning lessons because I guess sometimes when we are writing books, we also get to learn and crystallize some of the learnings, right? So um, what were some of the learning lessons you have from writing three books? Honestly, uh, Market Masters was a journey. Like that's where I, I interviewed. I was 27 at the time. I interviewed 28 of uh, the top investors in Canada and um, that's just, that just helped me so much, right? Like it was, 
a broad range of investing styles. Like I had already decided at that age, I, I was a growth investor, but I still interviewed value investors. I um, talked to some technical traders. I talked to some macro guys. Um, and then of course the growth investors, right? Um, that was phenomenal. Just meeting them, you know, pre COVID in their office, getting to know exactly how they thought, um, their mannerisms and, and the types of books they have on their bookshelf. And then, you know, reading some of those books that maybe I, I hadn't read and stuff after the interview, that was a phenomenal experience. Um, and then Capital Compounders, which is the latest book, really gets into my own philosophy about how I invest. And it's, it's free. It's perma-free, I call it, permanently free on capitalcompounders.com. Uh, you grab the ebook there and I, I just, um, you know, just dish it out, like all the mistakes that I've made. Um, and I, I really think that, you know, my ability now is a combination of all those mistakes I made prior, right? Either, you know, errors of commission, as Buffett says, or errors of omission. Um, you know, it's all culminated into a strategy that I use now to formulate my portfolio. Yeah. I, I mean, one, one thing I realized is that, you know, I, I think often investors tend to think about, hey, you know, um, I mean, back to the book, I mean, back to the part where you talk about interviewing people, right? And I realized that it happens to be when investors are really successful, they tend to be really quite generous with their knowledge. And um, have you ever thought about this? You know, um, uh, do you ever feel like because the fact that you have written so much, you have given so much of your knowledge, that actually invited a lot more competition, let's say in terms of the Canadian uh, stock market? Or do you feel that uh, at the end of the day, you know, it's still a fair competition? Yeah, to be honest, the Canadian stock market is ripe for the picking. I'll be honest, like there's, there's not a lot of attention on the Canadian market because, you know, Americans still have their memories of Nortel, of BlackBerry, and then more recently Valiant, you know, these larger companies that have blown up. Um, and, you know, a, a, the majority of Americans uh, don't even know a lot of these great micro cap and small cap companies on our exchange here, right? On, on, on the venture and the, the main board TSX. Uh, I actually avoid the uh, Canadian stock exchange, CNSX. That's a whole other story. But um, it's definitely ripe for the picking, right? And they have the power of their currency as well when you exchange it. But, um, you know, I think guys like Ian Castle, who you mentioned, right? I think he gets it and his community gets it in the US. Um, there, there's some good companies here in Canada. All right, that's awesome. So, you know, it's very exciting because we are going to move to the second part of this podcast. Um, yeah. You talk about um, Canadian, comp uh, Canadian comp uh, companies being right for the picking. So let's dig into the Canadian poutine, right? I think you guys have this famous dish <laughs> and that kind of brought into um, the dish. I was kind of like influenced as well. And in Singapore, we also kind of have the poutine as well. Really nice. Um, so how has your investment process evolved over the years? Because I know you sort of said that from the beginning, you are actually a growth investor. And I also want to find out from you, how can a company um, qualify, you know, to be included in your personal portfolio? Yeah, okay. So, you know, when I was young, first guy I found out about, like I said, Warren Buffett. So who taught Warren Buffett? Benjamin Graham. Okay, so then I read Intelligent Investor. And I read about margin of safety. So, you know, when I was young and naive, the age of 18, 19, 20, I was looking for, uh, you know, so-called deep value stocks. Uh, that, that didn't work, right? I, I, I said to myself, I don't want to sit on this company. You know, there's, uh, there's an opportunity cost here. My money's tied up and just, you know, wait for this to revert to the, the mean. And when it does revert to the mean, then what, right? You got to go hunting for the next company and then the next company. It's exactly what we, you know, we hear about today. Like it's the cigar butt, right? You got to keep on picking up cigar butts and you only get a puff or two. Um, so I, I moved on to uh, growth investing. And I remember, you know, the day again, like I said, grade 10, bought for Zanny Group. They're on an amazing growth trajectory and uh, they got bought out. They're an acquisition target. And, um, you know, I started, I, I, I stopped, you know, a lot of people, what they do when they start out, and I did this as well. You know, I would go to, let's say, Google Finance, Yahoo Finance, whatever tool filter you use now, probably something more advanced for some of your, uh, some of your listeners. And I would filter on things like, you know, price to book. Um, you know, it would have to be like, uh, like a, 
you know, two or under price of sales would have to be like five and under you, you know, ROE has to be over 15, 20%. And I was so stringent, right? I was so stringent on my filter. And what, when I hit that enter button, the go button, the results that I got, um, I missed out an entire universe of companies that were, that were there and that were in hyper growth mode um, because of these filters I had applied. And, you know, I learned through the books like Graham and I'd even learned in finance class, right? That was the thing to do. You know, a, a good company should be, you know, immediately profitable, yada, yada, yada. But that's not how this works in, in, in growth land, right? So now what I do is this is the most simple filter. You know, I'll, I'll go in um, and I'll, I'll look at companies that are under $2 billion. I'll throw in a um, revenue growth, you know, yep. quarter over quarter, year over year of 20% or more. And then I'll sprinkle in, you know, a, a good gross margin. So something over 40%. And then hit go. And usually that gets me some really interesting small companies, especially when you go sub uh, below $500 million level. Um, you know, you get, to, you get to some really interesting companies there. But, you know, if you really want to be really good at this game, turn over every single rock. Yeah. What I do every year is that I go to uh, CDAR, which has all of our public listings. I'm sure Singapore has the same equivalent. And I look at every single public company literally every year. And I just familiarize, familiarize myself. It's like the periodic table after a while. If you're a scientist, <laughs> you know, you name everything right at the table. <laughs> now, I, I, you know, I do that every year. I pretty much know every company that's listed in Canada. Um, but that filter does help as well. It just reminds me of, of these amazing growth companies. And this is the biggest mistake I used to do in the past, right? It was error of omission. Yep. Like I have so many regrets of companies that did not buy these explosive growth companies. You know why? Because I said, oh, you know, it's overvalued or yeah, it's the same old thing, right? Like when I was young, you know, if, if I saw something that was a 10 price of sales, I would just pa pass it up. But what if they're growing so explosively, they're growing right into that. I realize now that you got to focus on the business. Yeah. You have to look at the, the business itself, what market they're in, who's leading it. So I'm going to give an example here, um, but I have to give a disclaimer, okay? Sure. My lawyer has said I need to have a disclaimer. So just to tell your listeners, um, this is for information purposes only. Uh, I'm not a registered advisor. Please conduct your own due diligence, uh, and I'll disclose what I own, okay? So the first case study here is a company called Well Health. Yep. So Well Health, I first started building a position. I still own it. That's my disclosure. Uh, at around 17 cents. And I had found out about this, about this company um, because I believe it was a, a, a reverse takeover of another company. I forget the name. Um, and they renamed it to Well Health Technologies. But the CEO, he had just prior to this, uh, he had founded and sold uh, uh, TIO Networks to PayPal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's like a serial entrepreneur, right? Like it's, it's great um, to bet on these guys and gals and just keep on repeating it, right? They keep on repeating their success. And what he did with Well Health and what he continues to do is just amazing, right? So it's, it's the right company. It's, uh, you know, healthcare and technology. Like, wow, like you really got, you know, two check marks there. You've got a serial entrepreneur. He's very focused and driven. He has a big stake in the business. But here's the most important thing. It's he's growing in a new market segment. It's almost like he's creating the market. Yeah. And this is what I love. This is this is what sets apart like the, the stock that can go up maybe like two times or three times versus the company that can go up 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 times. So well health is buying up clinics, but most importantly, it's modernizing them. Mm -hmm. And it's also building this um, technology, this teledoc technology. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and they're, they're, I think they're the leaders uh, in, in Canada in that respect. They started early. Uh, I don't know the stock prices right now, but it's much higher than 17 cents. Yep. This is really key. This is, the, this is the, the last thing that a lot of even like really smart guys forget. You can have a really uh, smart... CEO and founder, 
you know, have a big stake in the company. Okay, great. Um, and they're in the right market, but are they creating something new? Yep. Right. Like uh, it was the same thing with canopy growth. You know, oh, yes. when I found out that Trudeau was being voted in uh, as prime minister of Canada, guess what uh, was one of the only marijuana companies at that time? It was a company called Tweed. Mm-hmm. I thought, holy smokes, <laughs> Tweed is going to explode because a part of prime minister Trudeau's um, his platform mm-hmm. to get people to vote for him, especially young millennials, was that he was going to legalize weed. Well, I, I, I bought uh, Tweed as quickly as I could. Mm-hmm. I started building a position. Mm-hmm. Jeez, when was it? Like 2015. And it exploded. I think it went up, uh, was it 50 times or something from that point? Um, and d- disclosure, I still own a portion of that stake. It's now called Canopy Growth. But, you know, these are some examples, right? And, and, and that, that's, the, that's the thing that you gotta, your listeners got to remember. You can have everything else like, you know, checked off, but you, you, you gotta, you gotta be in that new market that's just going to explode or that new service, that new product, that new idea that, you know, you're just going to ride, you're going to ride that wave. All right, Robin, that's really a lot of great stuff. And I was just looking at the well health, you know, it's about $6 and 25 Canadian dollars right now. And also they're expanding into us, right? And I think they raised a bit of money from Lee Kashing as well. So Lee Kashing also invested in Zoom. And that is kind of like 20% of his wealth right now. Amazing. Okay. I think when I, when, I, when I hear the things that you say, it also happens to me that, you know, if you look at the last four to five years, a lot of businesses that are actually multi-baggers, they are compounders, right? They tend to be loss-making right? Um, could, be, could be for many reasons, right? Could be because they're expanding, they're chasing the opportunity, they're building a whole entire market um, for themselves, right? So that they can have the market dominance over there. Um, but I'd like to ask you, how do you feel about loss-making companies? Do you feel that that's okay? Um, how do you make the dif- difference, uh, difference, you know, whether this, is, this business is loss-making because it's a broken business model or is it loss-making because they're doing the right things? This is a really interesting question. And a lot of investors and even portfolio managers, you know, people who who should really be doing a good job really missed the point. So let's, let's take Amazon, for example, you would have missed the first 20 years of Amazon, right? The first like 100 times, if you had said, Oh, like, I don't want to buy them because they're not generating a profit. Well, duh. You know, by the time they're generating a profit, you know, they're, freaking big company right and the point is is that any company any worthwhile growth company what are they doing in their infancy they're plowing back all that capital mm-hmm. into the business to grow exactly what you said kelvin right and so this is the beauty of it they're doing it to gain market share uh to innovate whatever it is they're doing uh to to break into a new market and if they do it right if they can execute and the profits will follow eventually but, um, you know, the mistake someone would make, especially in microcaps, is to start hunting for, you know, profitable microcap companies because I'll tell you something, they're probably not growing that fast. Yep. Uh, take an example for uh, Ready Shred Capital. Ready Shred is, you know, a microcap that, you know, some people really like. I don't really like that microcap in Canada. Um, it's profitable. It has a high ROE. Maybe people like it because of that. But, you know, I, I, I'm not committing a lot of my capital on my portfolio to ready shred because uh they're, they're not growing very fast it's it's not uh it's not a growth industry it's not going to hit a spark anytime soon so yeah that, that's a really that's a good question i think that was the answer you're looking for <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean you're right because uh as i look at management teams today um you know i think while they are actually the ones that's running the day-to-day business but i think they also have a capital capital allocation duty so sometimes, you know, when there's great opportunity, you've got to step on the gas pedal really hard. And, you know, the point is that what if, what is the point of being profitable right now? But if you're going to lose the market share in the future, right? I, I guess to your point, what I've learned as well is that grabbing market share today is going to be more important because that's where once you grab the market share, you're the dominant player. Eventually, you're going to raise your prices. You're going to be profitable any day, anytime. Um, 
that could be a possibility. Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, it, 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 it's so true. Honestly, by the time a company is worrying about cost efficiencies, yep. um, the revenue growth is gone, right? And <laughs> as a growth investor, um, I would either move on from that company and sell, or I would just not allocate as much money as I was and start looking at that new crop of growth companies, uh, right? And just start watering those little seeds. And, um, you know, year by year, as you see the management team execute on their plans, um, I would, you know, keep on watering those same seeds and grow them into bigger, into bigger trees. But yeah, once they do get big and they're starting to worry about things like, uh, you know, keeping costs down, things like that, then, you know, if they're late in the game, they're a mature company. And then, there's not as much money to be had as an early stage investor. That's beautiful. And that seems to be uh, very contrary thinking, right? Because as we are being told, um, as you know, when I was 19, you know, same as you, I was doing all the screenings and I, you know, I found out that the companies that I was investing was, was sort of making money, but the loss making ones are those that are actually doing much better because they're just kind of like reinvesting in a very big way. So I think we also mentioned about certain names that you have made a lot of money off. And I think um, based on the characteristics, you know, those are kind of the right fit. Um, they kind of fit the mold that we are actually looking for. Um, but let's move on to something maybe, um, you know, I guess we have probably made some mistakes throughout our investing uh, careers and also some huge gains in the stock market. And I do feel that it's really nice if we could just talk a little bit about the stories because um, in, in each of the stories, I think it could be a great lesson, right? So I think you have done well in uh, Shoppers Drug Mart, Rona, and a few others. But tell us about your war stories, Robin. Like what are some of the biggest mistakes and you know, what are learning lessons as well? Yeah, sure. Like there's, yeah, Shoppers was good. Rona was a good speculative takeover. I wrote about that in my book. You know, there's others like Shopify that I bought years ago. One of the best crown jewel yep. Canadian tech companies. But I've made a lot of mistakes too. And I am what I am because of the mistakes I made. And here, here's some interesting ones for your listeners. Yep. So I tried my hand at investing in the resource sector. So in a mining company. And I, I timed it so poorly. It was, it's, it's really funny. I laugh about it now. So this was like six months before the financial crash of 2008 and i'm not even kidding canada went through one of the biggest economic booms ever mm -hmm. um from the year 2000 to about 2007 um you know or the price of oil shot up commodities were shooting up as china was emerging and building their infrastructure and guess where you know china and the rest of the emerging world is buying their uh resources from canada right a lot of it's from mm -hmm. canada and I was the last guy to the party. I, uh, I bought a company called London Mining. I was like 19 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, London Mining, they, they mined for, I think, copper and zinc back then. Mm -hmm. um, I bought it at the height of the market, uh, the very like last year, and then it crashed. Oh. And I think I lost like 80% of the money. I didn't have much in there, maybe like $1,000. But to a 19-year-old, that could have been like beer money, right? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, and then I realized, you know, that you really have to time these commodity cycles. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting today, I think the commodity cycle is, is changing, especially with oil. We might never see oil. I might kick myself by making this comment, but we might never see oil come back again mm -hmm. at those, you know, uh, sky high prices because of the emergence now of electricity, which I think Elon Musk is doing a fantastic job at, at evolving and making mainstream. Um, what's another big mistake that I made? I think if we look at a micro cap, there are, there's so many opportunities to lose your money in micro caps. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think as you get better at it, you, um, you know, you, you, you get better at picking these, these good micro cap companies, but there's a lot that don't make it right. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to give a really good example of one that just didn't make it. Oh, there was, uh, Oh gosh, a company called Green Space Brands. Okay. And Green Space, I, I don't own this company anymore. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, I did, but I don't anymore. Mm -hmm. Same with London Mining, I sold it, right? But um, Green Space, they, uh, they were buying up as many of these small organic food companies as they could and trying to ride that wave. But uh, they, they could, just couldn't execute. They just, instead of building up you know, great acquisitions, and integrated them. They just built their debt portfolio. They had so much debt 
um, that you know they're still struggling to pay with uh, today. Um, and you know th- those are just some of the mistakes. I'm trying to think of another one, but I think the, the biggest mistake here's the biggest mistake I made. Yep. And I really want to to highlight this with your listeners. It's the error of omission. Like here's an example. I lost 80% in London. So I lost $800 out of the thousand dollars I put in. Mm-hmm. But think about the error of omission, like not putting money into, for example, Apple in 2007 <laughs> when they first unveiled the iPhone. I should have done that. I did not in 2007. I did much later, I think five or six or seven years later in Apple. And that you lose so much more money because of, of, of the power of compounding, right? Versus just oil off of 80% of stock, 50% of stock. So I think I've encouraged myself and I've given myself confidence to never have regrets. I think never had just, you know, I personally just put the money into a company that I intuitively feel uh, is a good company to bet on um, now. And, um, you know, in the pursuit of me, never wanting to have regrets. And even Jeff Bezos says this, right? In his own career as an entrepreneur, that's how he makes decisions. To, he makes the decision because he doesn't want to have the regret. Or... Yeah, wonderful. Robin, you know, um, when you mentioned about Apple, I feel a deep pain in my heart as well. Because when I was in, um, I think what you call it, in um, uh, kind of like high school kind of thing, I was with my friends. And, and I think that was when I saw Apple, right? And I saw the iPhone, it kind of like did so well, but it, it didn't just real, it didn't just got into my head that, hey, I should probably invest in it. Like we always thought that this company is big, right? But it can grow even bigger and it still com- continue to compound in such a massive way. So, well, uh, to kind of like console you uh, or, or just between us, you know, I, I didn't buy Apple as well. Um, but I guess that's a good lesson, right? And I, and I think I, I like the part that you actually mentioned that um, you talk about the, um, uh, the industries that you're investing in, that you like and, and you didn't like, industries that you had a lot of success in and those that, you, and those that could be a bit harder to, to have success. And you know, given that you have invested for so many years with a lot of wealth of experience, are there some industries that you totally avoid because you think that there's not there's just not a lot of money to to be made from there, or it's just going to be really difficult. And on the second part is that what are the industries that you absolutely love that you think is going to be a game changer for the next few years? Yeah, so I absolutely avoid um, what I call shackled industries. So shackled industry is one like oil, right? Yep. It can you know it can get that oil out of the ground in Alberta but it can only sell it at the prevailing price of a barrel of oil, right? Mm-hmm. So they're, they're shackled by, by, the, by the, uh, the same price that every other one of their competitors are. And uh, that's not a good business to be in. Uh, it's, not, it's certainly not a good business to invest in. Similarly, not many people think about this, but it's the same with financial services, mm-hmm. right? They're shackled by the uh, overnight rates, right? The interest rates that's set by the central banks. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, their NIM, their net interest margin is basically a victim of that. Um, and not only that, but it's cyclical, right? Like as we go through booms and busts, so do the banks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's incredibly volatile and uh, sure you might collect a dividend, but you know, we're not in that business to collect like a 3% dividend if, if you're not growing. Um, so resources I avoid, financial services I avoid, um, and the companies, sorry, the industries I love to focus on, technology. Technology, mm-hmm. you know, no one would doubt that it's becoming ever more per- pervasive, right? Like the innovation is not stopping, it's accelerating. I love technology, like I'm a big geek myself. <laughs> um, and, you know, healthcare really interests me, not the pharma side. I'm not one of those guys who trolls, you know, all the different patents and how, you know, farmers going through various clinical stages and betting on, on those types of developments and companies. No. Uh, when I say um, healthcare, I'm talking about like Teladoc in the US. Mm-hmm. I just went through that uh, merger with Vongo and then Well Health here. That's what really excites me. And then consumer. Consumer really excites me, like Apple or like Peloton now. 
-hmm. like uh, imagine uh you know perhaps in america and canada you know a point in time maybe 20 percent 30 percent 40 percent of households have a peloton in their house who knows right it's a really interesting company and oh here's something else that i, I look for as well i forgot to mention this um i i avoid like one-off purchase type of companies yeah the companies that i love are ones that sell a subscription so for example, Peloton, right? When you get the bike, you subscribe to whatever you get these, you know, superstar uh, coaches that coach you on the screen in your Peloton bike and you pay money for that, right? Yep. Subscription service. That's why I love software as a service, right? It's subscription. Now uh, Salesforce companies pay, uh, you know, subscription fee for Salesforce and, uh, you know, per how many employees that they've administered it to, et cetera. Yep. Yeah, a company like Netflix as well. Like, I love that. I love the recurring money coming in. Not only that, though, but, you know, these technology companies can build this base uh, and then grow it exponentially without having to expand their cost or their capital base as well, right? Like, for example, if you're a car manufacturer, if you want to grow, you got to keep on adding, you know, new car plants on top of that. And that's capital intensive. Yep. Uh, companies like technology, it's just... It's just phenomenal. I love it. Or a brand that really catches on. You know, if you have a good marketer behind it, like Steve Jobs, then you know, you can you can, uh, you can catch on with that. So those are the kind of industries I like to focus on, and then the former are the ones I avoid. All right, that sounds awesome, and I think this would kind of give a very good kind of guide to a lot of listeners out there. And I like the point you mentioned about digital digitalized products, right? Because the one thing I realized is that the cost to produce a digital product is very negligible, right? And that also shows that you have very low incremental costs. And I guess since we are talking about on the topic of industries, I also would like to find out from you, um, how would you structure your portfolio? Do you uh, say you would like to have a 20% cash, 10% cash at all times? Do you take a little bit of leverage? Do you do a little bit of options? Um, yeah, so, so could, could we um, kind of like find out like how do you structure your portfolio? Yeah, so my uh, portfolio is as follows. So it's around 80% in the Canadian stock market. So that's mm -hmm. the TSX and the TSX Venture. Yep. And then 20% is in uh, the US market. Mm -hmm. um, I think the only international company I, I ever owned, this was years ago, was a company called uh, Luxottica. Oh, they yes. were pretty much near, yeah, near monopoly for the uh, eyewear business, right? They, own, they still own Ray-Ban and Oakley. Lens, um, lens crafters, and you know, bunch of other brands, but th th that's my focus area. I, I like to just you know play in that sandbox in North America. I feel comfortable in North America. There's some outstanding companies here, so I have no need to go, you know, to venture outside really to uh, Europe. Um, actually, I, I do own uh, a little bit of Alibaba and Tencent. So yeah, I am in China, a little bit there, and then. If you, you know, zoom in, um, in Canada, uh, as, as I told your listeners, I've increasingly started to um, maximize my exposure into uh, microcap companies, right? I want to grow at the ground level uh, with these entrepreneurs, um, you know, who are venturing into new markets and doing great things. Um, and then, you know, the other part of my portfolio, which used to be the bigger part, you know, are these... You know, larger companies, mid-cap, large-cap, they have a high return on equity, but their revenue growth, their top-line growth might be, you know, between like 10 and 15%. So, yeah. you know, nothing really to, to really write home about. Uh, the U.S. market, really, I'm concentrated in all this, pretty much those technology names that a lot of people um, are, are, are thinking about today. It, it, seems, it seems to invest in the U.S. market these past 10 years is, has been, um, you know, quite easy it seems in hindsight right there's been so many so many great great companies um these past 10 years but uh in, in canada um there's a lot of these under the radar companies um as well and in terms of leverage um yeah. you know as i have gained confidence in my own investing abilities yes mm -hmm. i have um increased um the leverage that i use but i use it at opportune times yep um, so for example um, during this most recent uh, COVID crisis, when it finally hit the shores of North America in March, um, you know, it was almost like a, a zombie apocalypse. No one was at the mall. 
everyone was waiting for uh, you know our government to get on the TV to tell us you know what the hell is going on and what to do. As soon as politicians got on TV, scared everybody, scared investors, people started selling. Uh, your listeners should watch that really interesting clip of Bill Ackman on CNBC, where I think it was. I actually think that Bill Ackman going to CNBC, I think it was March 23rd. That was like the nadir. That was the low point for the market after that it went up. But yeah. he was almost in tears. Um, and he's done incredibly well, though, after that. But uh, he was, you know, pleading for the government to, to do something about COVID. But that was a great time to invest. And I actually added a lot of leverage then in March. I didn't time it perfectly. But in that week or two, you know, mid-March through the end of March, I was, it was like, honestly, it was like taking candy from a baby. It was just like, you know, systemic, systemic crash in North America. You saw it too. I'm sure you took advantage of a lot of opportunities, but I honestly, I was pretty much adding to every single one of my holdings. I don't think there was one holding that I added to at that point. Um, it, it, it's scary, but it becomes less scary as you go through more of these crashes. Like I lived through the, um, the financial crisis of 08, and I'm not kidding, I used, uh, I had no line of credit, no margin back then. I was way too young, didn't have enough capital up front. I was using cash advances on my credit card at 19% interest just so I could take part in that buying opportunity in, um, in you know, uh, September, October, November, I think it was 2008. Like it was just phenomenal how many great companies you could buy half off. And I, 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 I don't recommend that to anybody, but um, yeah, it was, and, and as I've grown older, I, I feel I can take more risks. So there you go. Well, I, I absolutely agree with you as well. I, I do use a little bit of uh, leverage as well. And I think that, I think the main conventional idea and thinking for a lot of investors are, um, you know, say no to leverage, right? But I think, if you kind of really know what you're doing and you're using leverage in the right way, um, that could boost your returns. And I think that may not be as risky as what is usually being perceived as. And, and I like the part where you talk about Tencent, Alibaba. It seems like over time, I think no, invest, no invest, investors could just con, uh, restrict themselves to their home country, right? Because the best businesses are out there, right? The world is actually our oyster, Right, that's how we can actually find the best businesses and derive the best returns. So maybe let's talk a little bit about the cash component of your of your portfolio. Do you usually keep a lot of cash, or do you keep your cash levels to be very minimum because you're always seeing a lot of opportunities out there? Yeah, so uh, you know, I always like to keep cash on hand, right? Cash on hand is good to have. Um, and to your point, Kelvin, uh, you know, no successful person has become successful just investing with their own money. You know, either it was like Warren Buffett, he, you know, as, as a youngster, he got money from his parents and his uh, parents' friends, that network to start, you know, his partnership fund. Um, or I think it was Bezos, he got some help from his parents. He literally got money from his parents. Or, you know, Trump even, he said he got a million dollars from his dad. Like, this is the point, right? If you have a good idea and you have a skill, you have a passion, you know how to apply yourself and no one else really knows how to do it. Like, you know, you've poured over, you know, 10,000 plus pages of investing material. You, you know this more than anyone else in your network. Um, then, you know, I think other people's money is how you just get to that point where, you know, you're uber, uber successful. No one's gotten to their point if they, if, no one's believed in them or they honestly, they haven't used OPM, other people's money. Um, so, you know, cash is good to have. I keep some cash on hand, maybe around 5%. Mm -hmm. um, but the leverage is there when I need it. And just, just going back to your point about um, Alibaba and just being, you know, worldly investor is so important. And the way I see Alibaba is, it's basically if Alibaba didn't exist, then Amazon wouldn't exist. <laughs> like they coexist in the same ecosystem. If you think about it, most of those third-party sellers in Amazon, it's all sourced from uh, China through Alibaba, basically, right? Uh, through through that that dropshipping model, and it's just it's all it's like a circle of life, right? The whole business cycle. So if, if Alibaba goes away, then I don't, I don't think Amazon would be what it would be. Um, and and that's where you got to look at it, right? You got to look at every part of the uh, supply chain. Um, I'm kind of going on a tangent, but there used to be this oh this Canadian company I forget the name now, but they were. <laughs> 
a supplier. I forget the name. I, I made a quick like 200 or 300 percent. They made a part or two for uh, and sold it to Tesla. And uh, they were bought out, right? They were riding that wave early on. But uh, this is the point, right? If you see a new company like Tesla, yep. I'm an investor in Tesla. But think about, you know, who's supplying Tesla? Yep. Right? Think about like the entire ecosystem and who's benefiting from it. And, you know, maybe start buying some of those companies who are smaller. Uh, like, you know, they're, they're kind of like that little creature that hangs out on the whale's back, right? Uh, the ones <laughs> I can buy that wave. So there's my tangent. <laughs> No, no, that, that that's brilliant, right? I, I I absolutely like the way you think, and and it's amazing because investors uh, like you, you know, you you guys tend to think on a different level, and I think that's a great way to play uh, the Tesla, right? Because if if you look at Tesla, you think it's kind of overvalued, but look at who are the suppliers. So that's absolutely a great strategy. Um, I, I know you have a page on a Patreon whereby you know members of the public could visit, pay your small fee to gain access to your latest stock picks as well. Um. So I'd like to ask you, like, what, what do you hope to achieve? You know, is it really out there to be a better community, uh, crowdsourcing investment ideas together? And could you share, share with us, um, what, what do you provide on your page on Patreon? Yeah, so um, Patreon is the evolution of my writing, I think. Um, you know, I've written books, but I think that, you know, people appreciate finding resources online now. Obviously, they like uh, consuming things in different formats. So on Patreon... I have an entire library of actual voice interviews, kind of like what we're doing now with investors in uh, Canada. You know, if, if I'm interested in, in something, I'll write about it on there. It's short, short and sweet. People can read about it. Um, there is an investor community. There's a Discord chat group. Um, you know, you can join the Facebook group, just type in Capital Compounders anytime. And, you know, I'm not, while I'm not making recommendations, um, I talk about like my favorite ideas every year just in January. Um, you know, I'll post about what I'm liking in the U.S., what I'm liking about Canada. And in Canada, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, mid-cap and large-cap companies. And then I also talk about the micro-caps that I like. Uh, well Health was one of them that I uh, talked about the January this year. Um, but yeah, it, it's just fun. And I think I, I don't force myself to write. I'll be honest. I haven't written anything. And I think like two or three months and some, some of my members are getting upset. Others are just, uh, you know, they're leaving, but you know, I, I tell them like, you're free to go whenever you want. Um, and I only write when I'm really, I feel compelled to write. And when the COVID, uh, crash happened, I was writing a lot, uh, March, April, May. Now, I was just writing a lot as much as I could. Um, but, you know, in, in times like these, when we see the market slowly slipping, um, you know, I, I don't want to make any type of prediction because I'll probably be wrong. The market is the best tumbler ever. I think you can, the beauty of the stock market, you can put anybody in front of a screen and have them start picking stocks. They can be homeless. They can be the richest person ever. Uh, but any of these types of people from any walk of life, they will be humbled by the market. And uh, that's why I don't make predictions like that in, in Patreon, but where the market's going to go. Um, sometimes there's like there's some of the companies that I like. Mm -hmm. I, 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 actually, I, I get your point, right? Because at the end of the day, it's about quality, right? Not about quantity, right? So it's just like the stock market. There are some months whereby you don't have to do anything and you still get gains, right? It's not about um, actions that always create results. Sometimes you need inactivity as well. And, you know, when you're being forced to create content, I think sometimes you may produce some uh, inferior content uh, just to kind of satisfy people. So I, I get you, right? Because at the end of the day, I, I do write a blog as well. I do post regular content as well. And people will come to me and say, hey, you know, Kevin, when is the next article coming out here and there, right? But, you know, you know, they always say, you know, you have to wait for good things, right? Good things don't come every single day. Like, Good ideas, good inspiration, they don't come every day. In fact, in a single year, if you have like one or two great investment ideas, that will kind of like make your year already. And the way I will look at Patreon, like for your page, you know, just by paying a small fee, you know, um, it's really um, like, this is such an easy decision, right? Because that could like kind of like leverage on your experience, avoid losses and make a lot of money because what is the most um, expensive thing that we cannot afford in life? is actually time. 
And just by paying a small fee, you can leverage off people, uh, time. I think that could be valu uh, very valuable. Like myself, I subscribe to Seven Investing. I subscribe to uh, Microcap Club. Um, I'm actually a member of um, Value Investors Club as well. And through that, you know, great ideas that's flowing through every day. So I would like to talk a little bit about the biggest misconceptions that most investors have. Um, I mean, like when I first started out investing, I always thought, okay, I got to stay attuned to the microeconomics factor. I got to look at the news. I got to look at uh, CNBC. I don't know, like, I would find out what's the latest inflation rate, interest rates, unemployment numbers, you know. But Robin, like how much of these factors really affect your decision when it comes to buying into great companies? It doesn't factor in at all. It does not factor in at all. I, I, I tune that out. I, I don't watch the news anymore. Um, you know, the unemployment, the employment figures came out today or yesterday in the U.S. I really, you know, couldn't really care less, to be honest. Um, I just focus on good companies, right? Like doing the hard work that a lot of people don't want to do, right? That, that research. And like here, like, this is a really inter interesting point, Kelvin. It's, it's getting inspired. Here's, here's how I love to get inspired. This is what I do. And, you know, I, I challenge your listeners to do this every day. Um, what I do, I have trading view. I, I, I don't subscribe to any of these things, by the way, uh, like, you know, Morningstar, the advanced stuff. I, I, I'm very frugal still. So trading view, I'll pull up trading view. I'll go to um, top gainers in Canada. And I've got that in my browser every day. And I refresh it every day. And I look at what are the top gainers every day in terms of percentage. And sometimes you'll see this, what, this company Maybe it's, you know, every five or 10 or 20 days, you'll see a company where you say, wow, I, I, you know what? I may have skipped over that company before, but what is going on? Like they, you know, the, the, their price keeps on appreciating. Something must be happening. It's gone from 10 cents to 20 to 30 to 40. What is going on? So then I get really inspired. I dig into the company and find out a, a new development. Maybe they just, um, you know, they, they just uh, launched into uh, a new market or whatever it is whatever it is. And that really inspires me to dig really far into that company. And uh, I have found some interesting stocks that way. And then the other thing I do every day, I look at the new 52 week highs. So I use, uh, I go to stock charts, their predefined scans and stockcharts.com. I go to new 52 week highs and I, I troll that as well every day and I get inspired. And, um, you know, my whole philosophy now is, uh, you know, I, I like to, I like to follow the price appreciation right? Like, Hey, as these growth companies are executing, their price is going to go up. They're going to get bid up. Um, and that's where I want to be. And, uh, I've, I found some, I found some great companies that way, like very early on. Robin, you kind of like flip the entire table, right? Because a lot of <laughs> investors, where do we search for value? Right. We, we, we go ahead and look at a 50, 52 weeks low, but, um, you know, these businesses that, that is kind of in the 52 weeks low, they tend to be broken models, broken business models. Um, in a way, terrible businesses, right? But, you know, what you have shared just now was absolutely an amazing hack, right? Just look at the 52 weeks high. If they continue to do that, there must be some reasoning behind it. It's like, hearing you is like kind of, you're, you're sort of like a very um, intelligent detective, right? You see, you, you search for bread uh, crumbs, you see for clues, and then that leads you to the, to the goal, right? Um, yeah. and, and, and since you're on this topic as well, I also want to find out from you, um, you know, you're always getting good ideas and you're competing it with your current existing portfolio. But at the same time, I do believe that as investors, we are all very curious individuals. We want to grow. We want to learn as well every single day, right? How do we ensure that you're growing every day? Because I feel that there's just so much to learn from everywhere around the world. Uh, what are some of your sources of growth and how do you uh, make time to actually spend time learning every day? Yeah, always be curious. Like you said, if you're not good, if you're not a good detective, then you're not going to be a good stock investor. Um, you know, your ability to be resourceful and to gather information is what will set you apart. It's where you find the multi-baggers. Um, you know, a ten cent example, right? Like uh, I met somebody. This was years ago. And she, uh, she was from China, and I, I, I said, hey, I'm curious. I invest in, you know, stocks. Can you show me your phone? And she's like, Why do you want me to sh show you my phone? And I said, Well, I want to see your home screen. 
she's like, okay. So I looked at her home screen and I, I got a glimpse of, you know, almost like where she was living in China, all the apps that she was using and services. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to find out. So what is, what is growing there? Um, and one of them was WeChat. I asked her, what's WeChat? And she said, well, it's just a thing. It's like WhatsApp. I, I chat with it. I looked up, you know, that uh, 10 cents the owner and I invested in 10 cents that way. And I, I, I kid you not, another thing that I do, it's the most simple thing. If you had done this 10 years ago, you'd have made a lot of money. Just go to uh, your Android or Apple app store and start, you know, trolling around. So looking at the top 20 downloads every month, see what's going on and see what's, what people are downloading. Like, uh, you know, right now it's TikTok and Oracle and Walmart are getting a piece of that action. So maybe, you know, maybe people can start bidding up, uh, you know, Oracle stock and, and, and a lot of stuff. Like, you know, this is how you really get some like easy, easy information. It's like social arbitrage. You see what people are doing, what they're buying. Um, you know, Peter Lynch said it best. That's still my favorite book of all time. It's Peter Lynch's One Up on Wall Street. I read it every three years. And every three years, I seem to learn something new. Um, it's, just, it's just such an amazing book. And yeah, you really have to be aware of uh, what is going on. I think so, social arbitrage is the easy thing to start out with as an investor is buy what you know and what you see people um, you know, starting to adopt in their own lifestyle, like the iPhone or like Peloton or like WeChat, et cetera. Um, but you know, as you become more skilled, then you really become that detective in these microcap companies that aren't household names. They probably won't be for the you know, next five or 10 years. So I, I guess one of the things that um, talk about learning is kind of be curious and you know I, I want to tell you something right Robin your, your mind just works very differently from a lot of people right people kind of say okay I'm gonna do the screening kind of thing but you're going out there the real world because that's where the real businesses are right um, absolutely amazing because you're dropping a lot of hacks that people don't even learn out there right for example, yeah. uh, going to look at the app rankings, looking at people's phone, look at the apps they're using. You know, this is the first time listening uh, to yeah. such an amazing um, hack. You know, but it, it's so straightforward, but people don't realize it, right? But, but I mean, you realize it and you, you see that that's a great way to search for great companies, right? And I want to talk about one thing as well, because um, I, I've been asking a lot of questions right now, but maybe I'll just throw it back to you. Um, are there anything else that you wish to share with the investors um, to become better overall? Maybe it's like a part two of your hacks. <laughs> okay, yeah. So like, hacks I love. I like them as much as you do. And here's another one. So the microcap companies, um, they hit this inflection point whereby, let's say they go over um, $5 per share. Like some of these institutions have rules whereby they can't start investing in a company um, if, it's, if it's under a certain price excuse me, or if it's under a certain market cap, once they hit, you know, that, that higher, um, that higher price, the higher market cap, and then institutions start buying, that's when you kind of, you, like, you really get some really interesting thrust. And so what I like to do, I like to dig into some of these, um, these hedge funds and these mutual funds that are investing in small caps and start trolling them. As soon as you see, like, the, you know, starting to accumulate a stake in, in a market cap that maybe crossed $500 million market cap, then man, like at least uh, continue to accumulate that, then you're riding really interesting waves. So you wanna, you wanna see that support. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I think, um, I think being on Twitter as well, like I was trolling Twitter for the longest time and just in the FinTwit community, there's just so much to learn from different people there. And uh, there's some really interesting ideas. Um, the other thing is you want to look at these, these overarching themes, like these paradigm shifts that are happening, right? I touched on it a little bit. For example, I love to acquire positions in companies which are a part of this paradigm shift. So, you know, marijuana was one of them, which was an amazing ride. Um, now you have um, healthcare technology. Um, another one is e-commerce. E-commerce is never going away. And... If you look up the stats, it's still so small compared to, you know, like the brick and mortar sales. There's so much potential. So what I did years ago, I put together a uh, e-commerce. Uh, I, I drew a box and a piece of paper labeled e-commerce. And I, I put in there all of the e-commerce companies um, that, you know, are starting up. They're already established. And I invested in those. This was years ago. 
Um, so this was, you know, Amazon was big um, back then. But here's some of the others. I own Amazon Disclosure. Uh, CargoJet. CargoJet is a Canadian company. Um, they do overnight uh, flight shipping. And they have been an explosive, amazingly run company. I own shares in CargoJet have, uh, for years. And they're part of the e-commerce industry because they're shipping packages, they're shipping boxes. Um, Shopify was another one I bought into very early. Um, and there's a company here in Canada called Descartes Systems after the French philosopher. As you know, we're bilingual here, right? Um, so adopt that name for the company. Descartes Systems, they create uh, the backend systems for um, companies to create their own uh, e-commerce storefronts. And so like, there's many more companies that I did, but I, 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 I put those, broke them in a box and invested in them the next day. And uh, this is what you want to do. This is how you, you get into the growth mode. And you know, I've done the same with healthcare technology. So I own Teladoc. I own WellHealth. There's another company, AmWallet, just IPO'd. Again, I'm not recommending these companies to anybody, but um, these are the type of waves that I love to ride. And it's about disruption. It's about paradigm shifts. It's about these, these new themes. Um, and the next theme I think we're going to see is uh, fintech. I think fintechs are still in this interesting incubation phase where they're still in like, private capital hands. And we're going to see soon, I, I suspect in the next five years, I think, uh, you know, Robinhood will be kind of like the catalyst for all these other fintechs to IPO. And that's going to be the next type of wave that I will ride. Um, and there's going to be many others after it. And here's another one, Tesla, right? The, the electrification of the world. Thank goodness. Thank God for, for Musk for getting rid of the old oil barriers and that destructive uh, oil and gas, um, you know, with Tesla, with the car, think about uh, the suppliers of that. Think about the battery in a Tesla. What is it made of? It's comprised of nickel. Nickel is a, um, you know, it's a commodity that you can't grow out of the ground. You, you, you dig it out and that, that's pretty much it. And it, it's the main component to the, the battery and and. and in electric cars and Elon Musk can't get enough of it and won't be getting enough of it. And, uh, that's another problem that he has. And um, so yeah, anyways, I'm going to tangent, but this is, this is how we think about the market and these are the hacks that people should adopt, I think. You know, Robin, I, I was just looking at uh, hearing what you say, you know, one of the common characteristics about the companies you mentioned is that they have all made the world, I mean, they are making the world a better place for the next decade, right? And this is the reason why they are valuable. And I think valuable businesses are the ones that solve the problems that make the world an easier place to live in. You know, they have more convenience, they have more happiness, right? Consuming products. And I think uh, one thing about you that I noticed is that you sort of broken away from the norms, right? But first you understood the rules, then you learn how to break the rules and created your own roots, right? It's totally unorthodox and that's how you find great success. So I, I think there's a lot of hacks that you have shared that's just um, unbelievable, right? Things that, I mean, the listeners could implement immediately. Maybe for the last one, right? How can people find out more about you? All right. So people can go to Google. They can type in my name, Robin Speziali. Uh, my last name actually translates to apothecary. So my forefathers like years ago were uh, pharmacists in medieval times. I don't know what they were selling back then. Some type of uh, herb that they probably told people like cured cancer. But uh, yeah, you can type in Robin Speziali, you can find anything there. Um, and my books are all available at local libraries in North America. I don't know about Singapore. I don't know about Asia. Um, but again, you can download my, my latest book for free. It's permanently free, capitalcompounders.com. Um, and you know, if I'm going to leave your viewers, your listeners, one last thing. This is an interesting story. Um, you know, I was really interested in this guy who was uh, shorting home capital in Canada during this short-lived uh, housing crash in Canada. Um, Warren Buffett kind of saved us uh, by taking a stake in home capital. But this guy's name is Mark Cohedas. He's a short seller. Um, and I just, I just felt one day, I'm like, you know, I'm gonna call this guy up. I don't know how he found his phone number. I have no idea. I called him, I'm like, Mark, I really wanna know about how you think about shorting. Like I, I was, I'm not a shorter, still I'm not today, but I love to find out the other side, right? I think that makes you a better investor. And he said something really interesting. 
I said, Mark, what is the one company that you will not short, that you know you'll lose? This is what he told me. He said, Robin, I will never short a company where people will say to themselves, if this company goes away, I'll be pissed. Hmm. So that's why he never shorted Tesla because there are so many people who freaking love Tesla cars. As much as we can say, oh, it's overvalued, whatever. It's a bubble. Some people are saying that. Um, people would hate it if you took away their Tesla car, right? They'd hunt you down. Um, and so that, that was so profound to me. So I thought, wow, I'm going to incorporate that in my own investing. You know, not only does these companies have good metrics and yada, 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 all that stuff people talk about, but you know, will people care if this company gets, if I yank that iPhone out of your hand, people are going to care about it. That, those are the companies that I want to invest in. Wow, that's great. I mean, if, if I get it correctly, is that if a, if a store that's selling bread that's like near my, my house and if it closes down, uh, no one's going to die, right? But if Facebook, Google, or maybe Apple or Tesla goes away, people's life would kind of regress backwards. That's the way I think about it. So great frameworks. And Robin, I just want to thank you for your time. It's been an incredible sharing because you have dropped so much investing wisdom and a lot of practical hacks that our listeners can implement immediately, right? So uh, let's end on that and thanks everyone for joining in and we'll catch you the next time. Thank you for listening to the Growth Investing Secrets Podcast. If you like this podcast, do leave us a review and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Don't forget to tag me as well at Tavesor on Instagram. As always, say no to lousy companies and only buy into the best growth companies in the world and I'll see you in the next episode.